If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. In 1597, the Dutch explorer William Barents and his crew of 15 set sail on a quest to find the northeast passage to China. But when their ship became stranded in the ice, they were forced to spend nine months fighting off ravenous polar bears, extreme cold and a seemingly endless winter. It's a remarkable story of survival in the harshest of conditions. And the subject of journalist Andrea Pitzer's new book, Icebound, shipwrecked at the edge of the world. Andrea was joined in conversation by a digital section editor, Rachel Dunning. They discussed Barrent's three remarkable Arctic expeditions, covering everything from mutiny and mass repairing to what happens when you're stranded in a corner of the world that no human has set foot on before. So your new book, Icebound, covers the story of Dutch explorer William Barents, who in the 16th century ventured further north than any Europeans before in, a, in an attempt to discover a northern route to Asia. Um, so my first question to you was, when did you first come across his story and what made you want to write a book about it? I came across it in 2008, at the beginning of 2008, when I was researching my first book, which was about Vladimir Nabokov, the guy who wrote Lolita. And I was looking into the history of these islands called Nova Zembla that were north of the Russian mainland, above Siberia. And I came across just a brief mention of these Dutchmen who had overwintered on this 
Island in the far north. And I thought, I've heard of all of these Northwest passages, and why haven't I ever heard of this story? So I basically decided within a few months, someday I would write a book about this, but I was already busy with another one. Um, but the more I got into it, the more compelling the story of these men, you know, pre-satellite phones, pre-GPS, off every map in existence in that moment, uh, and how they ended up that far north and how they tried to survive a winter there. Yeah, it's an incredible, incredible story. Um, your book actually charts three expeditions that Barents and various crews go on, with the third and final expedition leading to them being stranded for almost a year in this part of the world that no one has ever been before, as far as we know. Um, we'll get onto that later. I suppose, um, shall we put these expeditions into context a, a little bit? Can you tell our listeners a bit about why these Europeans had a vested interest in finding a Northeast Passageway as a potential trade route? What was the what was the reason? Well, this was really in the first years of the Dutch Republic. Uh, the Netherlands had been under Spain's control for a long time. They were in the middle of an 80-year war trying to assert their independence. And they wanted to try to build a maritime empire. So the goal, as with so many of these things in history, is money. Um, there was this uh, exploration that was meant to set up trade routes by finding a Northeast Passage to China. So getting to China and trading with China was the end goal. Uh, and right at this point, since the Dutch were still at war with Spain, a southern route going down around Africa would have been much, much more dangerous for them. That was already where Spain and Portugal had a lot of ships, had a lot of presence, had a lot of ties. But if they could find a northeastern route, they would have this sort of unimpeded access to China. Mm -hmm. And William Barents, the man at the heart of the story for you, um, who was he? Where did? What was his history? Well, it's a little bit tricky. Uh, this is one of the challenges of writing a book from 400 years ago. It's you know a true story based on real events, but with limited sources. So we only know so much about him. We know uh, he's very stubborn as a personality trait. He was likely born right around the middle of the 16th century, so probably around 1550. So he would have been in his 40s when he did these expeditions, which was pretty old for those days. And he was married. He had five children. He, uh, in terms of his personal accomplishments at the time, he had mapped, he had created the first a sort of book that completely mapped the Mediterranean coastlines. And that was a real achievement to sort of have unified all of it. And so he had a lot of experience sailing. He was already well-regarded as a navigator, but he was not a celebrity when he set out. He was not anybody famous. He was basically brought on in service to this dream of empire in that moment. So the goal, as you said, was to find this Northwest Passageway. And they tasked William Barents to head up a crew to go out and find a route. Um, I suppose one of the things that I'm interested in knowing is that they knew they were going out into uncharted territory. Um, what sort of misconceptions did people have about what they might find in these waters? What sort of task did they believe they were, were undertaking? Well, they're 
were some ideas that really went back to the Greeks, uh, that there would be this open polar sea, that if you went far enough north, yes, there would be some ice in your way, there would be some problems. But once you got far enough north, the idea was that there might actually be a, a, a sea that was warm enough to navigate and that you wouldn't be sort of hindered by all this ice. And it, it seems kind of crazy to us today to think, oh, you're going to go up there and it's going to be easy to navigate. But if you think about it, they did understand that it was daylight all the time in summer in the north, you know, in the Arctic. And it sort of would make some logical sense that all that sun might actually, at the top of the globe, be warming things up. So it seems outlandish now, but there was at least a little kernel of logic at the heart of it. Of course, it turned out to be a disastrously wrong idea. And so I suppose, can you give us a brief overview? I mean, it's, it's such a big story, but a brief overview of the first expedition. Um, what sort of, what what happened? Why did it why was it unsuccessful? Because it was ultimately unsuccessful. Well, it was it was sort of unsuccessful. What happened was the uh, so this is fifteen ninety four. They set out and they're in a very small fleet and they're going to split. This is the plan from the beginning that they will split and they will kind of go over Norway, go over Scandinavia, come down the other side, and then they will split. And some of them will try to go to the north of this land that's at that time known as Nova Zembla, new land, and some of them will try to go to the south of it. What they didn't know is whether there was a polar continent at the top of the globe, and maybe this was attached to that. So William Barrett's part of that expedition was to go north and see if these were actually islands or if they were attached to some polar continent. They weren't really uh, charged with going all the way to China on that first trip. It was kind of a scouting mission, but they hoped to both to go around Nova Zembla from both directions and meet on the other side. And to that degree, you're right, they were not successful. They did not round it and meet on the other side. Barents got trapped by ice, but he did get around the northern part of it, just enough to see that there was a sea on the other side that could be accessed. So when they met up again uh, in the south of Nova Zembla and they came home, it was really exciting news to the Dutch because there was this idea there might even be two possible routes that could get them to China. And one of them had been quite blocked with ice. Actually, both of them had had, had a tremendous amount of ice, but uh, they had both seen a sea that, uh, that would be potentially navigable. So after that first expedition, the Dutch were really raring to go to fund a second expedition, which they set up with seven ships full of cargo with trade representatives. Like this was the one that they were really committed on. So the first one was seeing the potential there really. And then the second one was that we're going to throw money at this. We're going to give you all our cargo in case you do get to China and we can trade. Um, what sort of, going going a little bit back to sort of the practicalities of everything, um, what sort of things were they having to do when they were on the water, when they came up against things like icebergs? And I don't know anything about sailing or uh, like, what sort of things would they have to do when you're sailing along, you're coming you're in these icy waters facing these stormy icy waters what would they do to to survive i mean there were times when uh it was incredibly incredibly dangerous because these icebergs could be huge much larger than their ships that you would even go up the mast you might not be able to see over them i mean so think of small ones of course ones you know as big as a, a car or smaller but other ones would be huge. Sometimes they would be coming toward each other and there was a 
danger of them being pinched between two huge icebergs and crushed. There were other times where icebergs would be driving in from one side and pushing them toward land, which could make them crash. Other times they would simply be pinned in. Um, there's one point in the journals that we have where they actually take out this like hand crank giant kind of drill, and they are trying to crack open a, a path forward and sort of leverage their way through this ice that comes up. So some of them are quite uh, fast-moving, dangerous disasters where there are where there's a current and it's bringing large pieces of ice toward them that will either hit the ship or will pin them to the shore. Um, other times it's this very slow, inexorable thing uh, whereby everything is freezing around them and they're getting locked into place. And the fear, of course, is that if they get locked into place, that they might not be able to break free. And so there's sort of the slow terror and the fast-moving terror, and they get plenty of each. At one point, the poor man who is tasked with keeping the journal for uh, the voyage, uh, Garrett DeVere, ends up, because he's the smallest, he volunteers to cross a moving field of icebergs to try to take a secure line and tie it to something near shore where they can try to haul themselves out of this horrible situation they're in. And so in my mind, it was so clear. It's this game of Frogger, right? He's hopping from iceberg to iceberg, except it's real. It's icebergs and it's moving and he's trying to climb across. And so the number and the ways, the number of ways and the ways in which the ice impeded them, it just seemed like as I was going through this were endless. It was really, it was really quite impressive what they had to deal with. I think there was a scene that sticks out in my mind. I think this was actually on the the third expedition, if I remember correctly, um, where there's two two icebergs that were, it was such a vivid picture you painted of the two, these two icebergs converging together that were going to you know they're going to trap these men in between and it was like that's something out of a film. It's very you know and Indiana yeah. Jones esque type thing. <laughs> They ended up having to row for their lives to try to get through that space before the icebergs closed. And and so, um, yeah, I mean, they just had to watch every moment. There's another time when they are about to be thrown onto the shore of an island and there's ice coming, and then they're being attacked by polar bears at the same moment. So they have to stop dealing with one emergency to turn to the other emergency. And so the number of times it's things sort of cascaded into disaster after disaster, um, you know, really made me admire their fortitude. And on the point of polar bears, I mean, the first expedition was one of the first time, I think it was the first time William Barents had seen a polar, had come across a polar bear. Is that right? It certainly was the first time a lot of the sailors had come across one. Yeah, as far as we can tell, that was the first time that they had seen it. They had seen bears before because they have this idea that they are going to take it back to Amsterdam, as they have seen with other kinds of bears, and maybe it will be a trained performer in the street, you know, or they'll tame it somehow. And so there's this ridiculous moment where they entertain this idea and they're going to bring the bear to them alive. They actually hope to bring it closer to them. And it's in the water at that point, so they don't have perhaps the best perspective on its size or its strength, but um, they loop it around the neck and they're trying to bring it to the boat and they realize it's a terrible, terrible decision that they've made. And they soon realize they, they have to kill it. And it's only kind of by sheer luck that the rope they've put around its neck gets caught on the rudder and like kind of holds it still for them that probably kept a couple men from being killed in honesty. Well, this is probably a bit more of a philosophical question rather than a history question. Um, but one thing that becomes apparent when you, when you read the book is, you know, they kill all these polar bears, they take hostages as they go on, on the first expedition, they steal occasionally. Um, it, it is, do you think mankind has this sort of intrinsic drive to conquer things? Because that was very much almost what they were doing, like trying to conquer nature. So what, what's your sort of 
とそんな。Well, it was important to me to, I mean, I think this is an amazing survival tale, but at the same time, kind of ethically, if we're going to the question of philosophy,、uh, I didn't think it was、uh, correct or right or true to present them as anything other than what they were. And part of what they were was、uh, agents of empire sent out to, to Establish monetary things and take things and seize land. And, you know, I mean, this, these were the things that explorers were charged with、uh, in those days. And I didn't want to romanticize this. If this is a little bit like a fairy tale, I want it to be a fairy tale for grownups. And the truth is that they, their first reaction to most of what they encountered was to try to kill it in terms of wildlife. There's a moment where they encounter walruses、uh, for the first time and they've heard about them and they know their tusks are valuable. Um, but they haven't seen them before themselves. And their first reaction is to go over into their small boats, go out and try to kill as many of them as possible.、Um, and so we do see that again and again. Clearly, the polar bears are out to get them、uh, and are sometimes very hungry.、Um, and at the same time, there are some egregious moments where they do harm to polar bears that's completely unnecessary, ones that aren't in their way or impeding them or a threat in that moment. And so,、um, I think that they are products of their moment. I don't think it's inevitable, but I think,、uh, in terms of explorers who went out from Western Europe in this era,、um, it's unfortunate and, and it's all too common. So I, I wanted to reflect that as a piece of the book. I wanted to dismantle a little bit the idea of the hero explorer and that it's enough. That they had to deal with the things that they had to deal with. We can still admire their fortitude. We can admire their strategies. We can admire、uh, the way they stuck together and tried to do things collaboratively. And we can still see the worst of what they did and know that that's not the right thing to do. Sure. That, yeah, that makes a lot of sense.、Um, going on to the, the second expedition. So you've already sort of touched on this already. So we had the first expedition in which they saw the possibility that maybe we could actually find a way to China.、Um, so the second expedition was investors poured a lot more money into it.、Um, a veritable fleet of ships was set out this, sent out this time.、Uh, but things didn't go to plan.、Um, so where, where did things begin to go wrong on this expedition? Everything went wrong. Well, they didn't lose a ship. So I guess if, if they had actually lost a ship, that would have been even worse. But short of losing a ship, everything that could go wrong on an expedition went wrong on that second expedition. And from quite early, they had not even left entirely sort of Norwegian waters when there was a collision between two ships and sailors were drowned. So right off the bat, some bad things happened. I don't want to ruin all of it in sort of detail, but I will say. There are men eaten by polar bears. There is a mutiny. There is keel hauling, which is when a sailor has a rope tied around him and he is dragged under the boat as punishment. It comes a little into play with what you were talking about before, which was stealing from indigenous people there and punishment for that. So,、uh, pretty much everything is a disaster. And of course, just as with the first expedition, you have this impenetrable, horrifying ice once again,、um, which is sort of the leitmotif of the book. But that second expedition, in addition to the ice,、uh, everything went wrong. And, and when they came back, again, not successfully getting to China, turning around and coming home,、um, It was,、uh, they were met with great disappointment that, that they had not achieved their goal because it really seemed as if they might. And they, they didn't really get even as far as they had on the first expedition. One thing that really struck me about Barents as a character is that、um, 
at some point in the second expedition, you know, so many things have gone wrong, which you've just mentioned. Um, a lot of his men are sort of like, we want to turn back quite reasonably after a lot of, you know, it's, it's a terrifying place and all these things have happened. But he's still very adamant that he wants to push on and he's got this this spirit in him. Um, do you think this was part of his his character from everything you've read about him? Was he, was he um, a man obsessed with his dream or anything like that, do you think? I think he was obsessed with going on with with just continuing if it were at all possible to continue to try to find this route because time and again we see him uh, on the first expedition even he is still wanting to press on and his men sort of gently make it known to him that they don't think this is a good idea now he doesn't appear to be a Captain Bly or anything like that he doesn't appear to be a tyrant so uh, we don't have a record of any mutiny from that voyage it seemed like he listened that he agreed they turned around, but it was their instigation that they turn around. And on that second expedition, he is, the the Amsterdammers, as they are sometimes called in the record, uh, are the ones who do want to continue on. In Even as there is unrest growing, even as, as things are more and more miserable, um, they become the only contingent in this fleet that want to press on. And they even talk about, like, a couple vessels staying and trying to spend the winter for which they weren't really provisioned at all. And uh, I I suspect it's a little hard to read between the lines of the historical record, but I suspect that 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 suggestion and that that was being taken seriously at all by the group of officers who would in the end make the decision uh, probably is what helped spark the mutiny. Because I think that the idea of voluntarily staying in this place for the winter was just unfathomable to the crew members who had come along. On the subject of mutiny, perhaps you could tell our listeners about um, about the rules about it, basically. like What happens when sailors mutiny? What punishments do they face? What are the repercussions of it? The ca- captains historically, uh, for, a very, for centuries, um, when you're at sea, the captain is sort of king and emperor and everything. I mean, he has certain responsibilities that he could be in trouble for once everyone is back home, if he doesn't look to the crew, if he doesn't try to protect uh, the crew, if he doesn't make good decisions. But while you're at sea, uh, the captain's word is God's word, basically. And so um, going against that authority, uh, he had the prerogative to punish uh, by death at will, if there was clear abrogation of those rules. And so um, it t- to commit to mutiny like that, particularly in a situation where it's not as if they could just hijack the ship, sail a half a day to somewhere, and then escape on land. I mean, to do that so far from home, um, when even if you succeeded, you might end up dying, you know, in the, in the Arctic ice. Uh, I think one has to be particularly committed to mutiny in that moment because um, it's very unlikely that you're going to get away. You may not even survive, but the likelihood that you would get away with it would be very, very small. I suppose another point that I'm curious to ask you about as well is, and it's quite hard, this is quite hard for me to get my head around in a world of having Google Maps so readily available on my phone, is that they're completely in uncharted territory. Like you just said, if they mutiny, there's even the question, if they're successful, can they even get back home? Um, Just how... How are they charting their way? What sort of tools and things are they using to figure out where to go? When you've just got this vast expanse of sea and ice, it's like, where do you go? Well, 
by the third expedition, which I guess we'll talk about in a minute, but by the third expedition, they're off any map that's ever been made. And on the first expedition, they charted new land. But this place that they're in on that second expedition, which is called Vygach Island, it's just north of the Russian mainland. And there had actually been uh, some expeditions that had gone through there and that had recorded it. So they, I wouldn't say they were good maps at all. Uh, they were kind of approximations. Um, but Barents, and this was his real skill, this was his talent, this is why he was on all three ex expeditions, was as a navigator. And good navigators in that day could determine latitude. So how far you were north or south of the equator, the North Pole. So your north-south location on the globe, you could determine with great, great, great accuracy, even at sea. Um, however, they could not yet find longitude, which is your east-west location at sea. So even as they were charting, if you would see some of the things, they would be kind of stretched out or like too narrow or because they didn't really know how far they had gone east and west. So um, in terms of getting back home, if you were a good enough navigator to determine your latitude, you would always know if you needed to keep going south or north to get home. So you could find your way home. But in terms of mapping new lands um, or returning from those, it, you know, it would be very, very tricky if you couldn't do that. And for, for Barents, um, the maps that he made were in some ways really surprisingly accurate for what they were able to do. And one of his gifts to history was to chart um, not just uh, Nova Zembla, but also on the third trip, they discover Spitsbergen, which is the main island of what today is known as Svalbard, halfway between Norway and the North Pole. And so the maps that they made and, and even the maps that they took with them um, were more advanced than you might think for 400 years ago, but they're not anything like, as you said, in the universe of the GPS that we have. There was no call-up thing where you could just know that. And keep in mind, too, that they're seeing all this ice all the time, and it's hard to tell, is ice on the land? Is it like, are they seeing land or are they seeing just ice in the water? And when it's all packed in in different shapes, sometimes you can think you're along a coastline that you're not actually anywhere near. You might be out near ice in the water and think that you're somewhere else. At one point, they think that they are in Greenland on that third expedition, which they never came anywhere close to. Um, so even with a good navigator, it was, it was really like an art rather than a science. So coming on to the third expedition, the second one was a failure, obviously, and investors had poured quite a lot of money into this. You know, they'd loaded up the cargo with riches in case they did happen to make it all the way to China and could trade. Investors were willing to give it another shot. Was this a foolhardy gamble? What? Why were they willing to give things another go when things had gone so spectacularly wrong on this second expedition? Well, it's important to say that out of all the, the different localities that had come together to do that second expedition, all of them but Amsterdam bailed on the third one. So the reaction we might expect, which is, well, this was a big hit on our investment and we're not going to do this anymore. Um, it, you know, it was uh, reasonable for them to make that decision. But uh, Amsterdam stayed on and sent, in the end, two ships on that third expedition. And part of the background for that, uh, for why no one else came, in addition to the disappointing results from the second expedition, at the same time that Barents' second expedition had left, the Dutch had also decided to try to hedge their bets by sending a southern fleet out to follow more the routes that the uh, the Portuguese were sort of monopolizing at that time. And that expedition hadn't come back yet. So probably some of these investors were also thinking 
The second sure seems more dangerous in terms of political enemies, but we know it exists. We know that you can sail a ship there. And so perhaps that will turn out to be the better investment. And for Dutch history, that does turn out to be the better investment. But for polar history, that third expedition that goes north with Barents becomes very important. Yeah, they must have felt that it was considerably more dangerous, this expedition, because they, well, you have mentioned they didn't send out as many ships. And I think I, I recall reading that they advertised for unmarried men to embark on the journey instead of um, just anyone. There was definitely more considerations taken. Um, something that is quite interesting is, and this is a slight spoiler, so the third expedition, much like the previous one, was not successful in terms of finding a route to China. But it was, it did add to understanding of Arctic exploration. And even, um, there were even some scientific discoveries. So uh, yeah, I wondered if you could tell our listeners Um, about some of the things that they found. Some of the things that they found actually weren't even recognised as discoveries until much later. They weren't even aware of what they were finding. An example might be that they were discovering where geese um, were going when they vanished for the winter. Well, I think that it's fascinating because they kind of live in this moment when science is coming to be Uh, coming into its own as a really powerful force in Europe. And scientific method is being adopted in Europe. um, And, uh, you know, we have major scientific treaties being written. And these guys, I think, they're definitely men of faith. They talk about praying at various points or hoping for God's mercy on things. And they're also kind of proto-scientists. So they're kind of in between these two worlds. And I love that. Their reaction, I mean, they would be horrific with these bears and then they would skin them, but they would measure them and they would tell you how long the pelts were. They would see this phenomenon in the sky, which was not the the thing they discovered, which I'll come to in a minute, but they would also just see what's called a parhelion or sun dogs, we kind of know them as now, which isn't totally unusual, but isn't common either. And they actually measured how far above the horizon was it. They were like documenting things as they went. With the geese, with the goose eggs, I think it's a wonderful story because no one had ever seen this particular uh, goose reproduce and lay eggs. And so in Europe, it was thought there were all these still folk tales that they like, that they metamorphosed out of driftwood. I mean, there were all of these crazy ideas they had about where these barnacle geese came from. And for the first time, these guys saw the eggs, they saw how this happened, and they realized it was just like other birds. And that was one discovery that they actually realized they were contributing to because the Garrett DeVere writing about it in the journals was very proud and laid everything out that they had, all the myths and what they'd actually found. So I do think that there was an idea of science there. The more amazing thing to me is this Nova Zembla effect, the Novaya Zemlya, that's the Russian name, Novaya Zemlya effect, uh, that you mentioned that they saw where the sun actually appeared to come up weeks early. They knew after polar night when they should be able to see the sun again, but they saw it early and they didn't know how to reconcile it because they believed in the astronomical tables. They understood that those were reliable. At first they were like, are we a few weeks out with our calculations of time? Right, well, because their their clock had frozen, right? And so then they had been relying on just the hourglass. Maybe did we miscount the hourglass, but how could we miscount the hourglass for weeks? So they were really wrestling with it. And in the end, um, the the they basically decide that they will just record what they see. And it is that 
story that causes the entire journal to be disbelieved by a lot of people for like centuries after they return because this seems so improbable and so impossible. And yet in when Nansen is in the far north, um, another legendary explorer, but literally three centuries later, he sees the same effect. And since then it's been documented and it is just kind of this refraction effect that happens when you have layers of air with different temperatures. And it basically creates this kind of funnel or, or tube in which uh, the sun gets reflected above the horizon from where it's actually below the horizon. You're seeing basically a reflection of it, and it looks as if it's coming up early. And so it's this amazing uh, mirage that they recorded, and they recorded it so accurately that we actually can still learn from what they saw then, but it was not something that would be understood for hundreds of years. So it's one of the things I love about what they were doing there, that I think they kind of did take on that role deliberately, but they wouldn't have thought of it as the role of science, you know, but that's what it is. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. They gave me such a feel for how at the mercy of the elements these guys were and how much more uh, sort of cosseted we are in our modern times. And so that was a really interesting thing for me to sort of have a little unexpected peek into the challenges that they'd faced. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What would you say were the biggest challenges facing Barents and the crew on this third expedition? It's obviously a much smaller expedition than the previous one. Um, and perhaps you'd like to tell our listeners what happened, really, because th it was this expedition that led to them being stranded for almost a year in this in this icy corner of the world that had never been inhabited by people. Um, perhaps we should, yeah, delve a bit more into that story. So on that third expedition there, that time, they set out in the two-ship uh, party, and they are told to head straight north, basically to kind of try to go over the pole, the way some airplane routes do now, because that would be faster to get to China. And so they get up and discover this uh, island, uninhabited island, Spitsbergen, and they try to go north of that, and they just get stuck in the ice, and Barents wants to go back to Nova Zembla. And Jan Cornelis Rip, who is the captain of the other ship, does not want to. He thinks they have to stick to their original mission, but Barents feels like they're not going to make progress there. So they have words, as Barents seems to each time over navigation issues. He has very strong opinions. And they split ways. And so then Barents is headed east. And at this point, getting to Nova Zembla is quite easy because he's already been there on that first trip. And so he knows what latitude he needs to aim for. So he just kind of zips straight across from where they are and heads east. And he has a pretty good idea where he's going to land from his prior voyages. He gets up past where he went the last time and he gets all the way around so they can actually see open sea farther than they could on the first trip. And there's a prize that's been offered for this. And so his men think... 
Like, this is it. We're going to get all this extra money when we come home. Everybody's very excited. And they travel uh, a little bit south. And then they begin to get stuck. And they realize they can't get into open sea. They think if they just go further along, maybe they'll get to open water. And then they just can't get further along this eastern coast of Nova Zembla. So then they decide they have to turn around and try to go back the way they came. And they spend about two weeks trying to turn around. But unlike the first two voyages where they turned around in time, this time it's too late and they get stuck at what's called Ice Harbor. So the challenges up to that point are no more than the first voyage, which were still significant, navigating all that ice. And, you know, I mean, it's, but those were challenges that they had kind of, uh, that they knew what was coming. Barents had seen those things before, and there were people on that third voyage. Uh, the captain, uh, Van Himskirk, had been on the second voyage. So the ice was well known to both of them quite well at this point. And so then it becomes the challenge of overwintering, which is a, a completely different task. And I will give away one little plot point, which is that um, just they decide on September 11th that they will stay the winter on Nova Zembla. And shortly after that, uh, as they are tasked with building a cabin for shelter, the carpenter dies. So it's a really uh, not a fortuitous beginning. Um, there's not wood. Um, there are not trees. There's nothing. This is an Arctic desert, basically. That When I visited there myself, I went on three expeditions. When I visited this spot myself, the only thing, the tallest thing I found were Arctic poppies that were about maybe seven centimeters tall. Um, so definitely no trees. But they went and found driftwood. So they had to scour the shores for driftwood. And they took apart parts of the non-essential pieces of the ship to try to build this cabin. So the challenge was first to have this shelter. And meanwhile, they're being constantly attacked by polar bears. So, I mean, if you think your kids at home in the pandemic are annoying to you, imagine trying to do your essential tasks and having polar bears sneaking up on you all the time. And yes, besieged by polar <laughs> so. bears. Um, I think one of the things that's really hard to grasp is just how remote they were. Um, they have landed in this place that no one has ever inhabited before. There is absolutely nothing. There is no security blanket there. There is no. There are no humans there. Um, most of us will never be faced with that reality in our in our lifetimes. We'll always be within proximity of civilization. Um, what was it like when you travelled to this place on your expedition? Did you get a sense of that isolation yourself? I did. It was really interesting. I mean, it was important to me to go there because. If I were just going to write it out of archival records, then I think any Dutch historian who spent 40 years you know, on this story would know it better than I could. But I thought if I could get there, that maybe there would be something I could add, the feeling of being in the place that maybe would be something new for this book. And I was glad to see that I did have big feelings and, and certain observations by standing in the ruins. Some of the logs are still there of uh, their cabin and seeing where the sea was and what they would have seen when they looked out. And I was all together across those three expeditions in the Arctic for five months out of the year at different points. So I got to see how does ice behave when things are thawing? How does ice behave when things are freezing? How does ice behave when you're in the water with it? What do you hear? What does it smell like? You know, so there were a lot of things that, uh, that I think helped recapture that sense. And even today, even knowing that we had a beacon on our little boat that somebody was tracking where we were, um, which wasn't the case at all for them, just standing out on that spit of land, even in summertime, which is the only time, of course, that is smart to go still, um, 
was really this isolated moment, but it, it also brought home to me how much more isolated they were than we were, again, because we did have a satellite phone for emergencies. If we had to be airlifted out, it wouldn't be quickly for sure, but somebody would eventually come. But that was the thing that struck me. For these guys, because they were off every map in existence, if there had even been a rescue organized for them, nobody would have known where to go. Nobody knew that place existed. And so the idea for them, not only did they have to build that shelter themselves, but they already knew at the end of that winter, if they made it through, that their ability to get home would rely entirely on themselves. No one was going to come for them. And I think as they got sicker and sicker with scurvy, and they knew, they didn't understand the causes of it exactly, but they understood that they were sick of something that people sailors often died from and that they were getting sicker. And so to get up every day and deal with the bears and deal with the ice and walk those miles to try to get wood to burn so that they, because they had more than an inch, uh, more than two or three centimeters of ice on the inside walls of their cabin, inside walls. Um, and so just to survive every day was this huge fight knowing that the best they could hope for would be to survive to spring. And then they still had to solve this unsolvable problem. Their ship is frozen in the ice. How are they going to get home? And so even though going there, I think, gave me a lot of perspective on them, it just made me admire that much more how they dealt with being so isolated and knowing they were their only resource for each other. Do we have any um, indication from the records that you've looked at about how they how they kept up morale during this time? How did you deal psychologically with, with, all, with all of what you just described? One idea is that... Um, the captain sort of having such unlimited authority can be useful in this situation because you don't have 30 people making a decision. And they seem, but if you have a bad captain, of course, then it works to the contrary. It seems that von Hemskirk was a good captain and that, that he and Barents, who are kind of seen as the, it seems as if they were sort of seen as these two co-equal leaders, that von Hemskirk was in charge of the ship and protecting the men, and Barents was in charge of like how they were going to get there and where they were going to go. And that they worked well together. They had been on the prior voyage together, and that the men seemed to respect that. It's interesting. There's a moment when we don't so much see interest in a mutiny on that third voyage necessarily, although it could have headed that direction. But we see the men, when it gets to be May, and there's, the ship is still frozen in, the men start saying, we should take our small boats and go home. And the captain is like, I want to wait for the ship. Because of course, committing to the small boats to go in open boats more than a thousand miles is like impossible. And so he wants to try to have the ship if they can, but the ship is not, even though it's coming into summer, the ship is not free. And so Barents is the person that the men go to, and they ask him to intervene with the captain. So it's clear there was a hierarchy, there was comfort with Barents as somebody that the men could turn to, that, that Barents was someone that the captain listened to. And so I think that there was both this very strict order of naval discipline, and there was also this community that got built um, in which people were allowed to have a say and people were allowed to be involved. I don't want to romanticize it too much. Uh, Van Heemskirk and Barents were out of most of the chores. They didn't have to do the worst chores because they were socially more important. But they were also in some ways more important because they might be the only two who could actually navigate a boat and get home. So other, there were reasonable reasons to keep them protected in terms of the investment of trying to return. But it's also clear that social hierarchy and class, you know, had a role here as well. One of the things that was became a massive challenge for them all, and you've already mentioned it a little bit, was scurvy. And 
they didn't fully understand at the time how to treat this, um, but they were very aware that they were they were sick from something. What sort of things did they try and do to remedy this illness? Well, it's this very weird thing because, um, I mean, you know, the British have limeys, right? I mean, and that's because of the limes that these sailors were given much, much later, centuries later, but even into that era. So for hundreds of years after this, people will sort of know what helps scurvy, but they won't quite know what causes it. And the, the cures for it will kind of come in and out of awareness and people will continue to die on these long voyages. It, it, this is right at the moment when it first became a huge issue within the century before Barrett sailed, because before that, you couldn't go on these long voyages. You didn't know the map well enough. And so you were never away from land long enough to be sick, to be deprived of vitamin C for this long. So um, in South America, for instance, some indigenous populations knew very well how to treat it. And when sailors would arrive, they would actually give them the fruits that they needed to address it. So it wasn't as if this knowledge didn't exist in the world, but a clear link between it, uh, it didn't happen. But um, I don't want to ruin the plot of the story too much, but I will say one of the characters that is in my book later goes on uh, um, another expedition, survives and goes on another expedition on which he takes uh, necessary food that will provide them with vitamin C. So somehow he did learn the lesson of this, but it was just one of these things that science hadn't quite wrapped its head around in this moment. And there was nothing locally up where they got stranded that they could have eaten as far north as they were. There was nothing growing that would have given them that vitamin C. It was only trapping Arctic foxes that can synthesize some of their own vitamin C that probably allowed them to survive as long as they did. Mm-hmm. I think you, you're right as well that um, they had a belief that exercise might help with the symptoms. So they'd go out and, and exercise, hoping it would make them f- probably make them feel dreadful. Um, these poor men with their worn down bodies going out to. Yeah, the, the captain would, they, they thought this was a common thing, that it was inactivity might be part of it. I mean, this was sort of the original, you know, Protestant ethic coming to bear here, right, is this idea that if you're feeling bad, it's just because you're lazy or you're inactive, so you should go out and do things. And so the captain did make them go out and exercise. And when it was sunny and it got a little warmer, I think they didn't mind it as much, but it sounds as if they didn't necessarily like it as much when it was, you know, Arctic cold and ice and snow, and the captain is making you go out and exercise as you're literally dying. So yeah. Um, I suppose we'll we'll leave their fate and the fate of William Barron for listeners to maybe find out by reading your book. I hope so. <laughs> um, but um, well, as I've already said, they they did not succeed in in finding passage to China. Uh, when when was such a passage d- discovered finally? Well, I will say just to, to make it easier for you to just say that. Um, they don't all make it back. Some of them are going to make it back and they do not all make it back. But um, it is actually about almost three centuries before a Northeast Passage is found. And so I think that just underlines the difficulty of what they were setting out to do and what an amazing feat that they got as far as they did, that it really was. Um, Henry Hudson will go out about a decade after Barrett's last voyage, and will try to do that voyage himself, and fails to get even as far as Barrett's. In the early 1800s, there are a whole series of expeditions that try to go to the ruins of Barrett's cabin, try to get to that spot, and they fail. And so it, it is just 
so treacherous with the ice that it is literally, uh, it is in, it is mid 19th century before we get that Northeast passage. But now of course it's become much simpler with warming climate, um, and the massive drop off in ice, uh, in the mid two thousands. Um, we were there in August, uh, mid August, about a week before the time in August when Barents and his men were stranded and outside of the actual glaciers, which where of course there's still ice, um, on the regular terrain there, there's in August, there was almost never snow or ice. There would be kind of a little bit of it here or there occasionally, but mostly we were walking on gravel and, and ground when we were ashore. And so it was really striking to me how much had changed. Interestingly, some things were quite the same. So climate has changed quite a bit, but where Barents and his men encountered those walruses for the first time, these hundreds of walruses they came across near the Orange Islands at the top of Nova Zembla, when we rounded a shoreline there, we saw hundreds of walruses at exactly the same place. Now, we did not climb over the side and go try to kill them all. So your question <laughs> about human nature, uh, we did not do that. Not only would we have gotten in trouble, but we had no desire to do that. But one of the crew members pulled out a garmonica, which is like a little accordion, and actually played a concert. And uh, tons of walruses came over and actually were enthralled and watched this walrus concert. So I like to think if the climate has gone south in terms of uh, the prospects for wildlife there. Uh, hopefully human nature has, you know, improved somewhat in these four centuries. Did you, when when you went up there yourself, did you come across polar bears? Did you see any in, in close quarters? Hopefully you didn't have to fight one off. <laughs> I know, I did not have to fight a polar bear, but it's um, all three expeditions. Uh, it's required anywhere you're up in the Arctic to have somebody with a gun who's trained in how to deal with the polar bear. You literally can't be... Um, you can't be out and about without that trained person. You're not authorized. Otherwise, you can get in quite big trouble. Um, but uh, on the third expedition, uh, we did see a polar bear. Uh, it went by in pretty close proximity, but it was clearly scared. It was spooked by a party of humans, and it made a break for the sea and swam off quite quickly. But um, I hadn't noticed it at all before it made a break for the sea. And it Somebody asked me the other day, there's a point on that second voyage where a man is taken unawares by a polar bear that just sneaks up on him. And you think it's this giant animal, like how would it do that? But they're really pretty extraordinary predators. So I'm glad I didn't have any closer encounter than that. I'm curious to know, um, in your view, how do you see Barents and his crew, um, how do you sit his accomplishments amongst other perhaps more famous explorers like Columbus, for example, where do you place him in the in the history of exploration? How do you see him? Part of what I decided, like as I was researching and then writing this book, is that Barents is, before him, people gain like immortality by discovering a whole continent to plunder or a whole new route around the world, let's say, um, and sort of very much these mercantilists, like this ability to find colonies and have new peoples and um, and to do this trade. And Barrett's failed at all of those things, but he kind of becomes the first face of this polar explorer that becomes so popular in the 1800s, which is the guy who is on this just endless quest who's who gains his sort of fame and notoriety through his ability to endure and to suffer. And it's important to say when he first got back, what they did was so extraordinary. They did become famous. The, the account went into language uh, when people first got back from the expedition. Um, it, the account went into several languages and they um, 
had multiple editions of some languages. And within a few short years, about three or four years after they return, Shakespeare is putting a reference to them in Twelfth Night. This is how famous they are. So he does become quite famous, but then he becomes much less famous. And in the 19th century, there's kind of a revival of him, particularly uh, in the Netherlands and in his celebrity, because he does kind of become the face of this thing that became so important for empire later. But by the time you get into the second half of the 19th century, you have in-depth letters, you have telegrams, you have photos. By the beginning of the 20th century, you have film footage. And I think it's impossible with the little bit of records that we have uh, for Barron's account to sort of compete with these things that people could watch in real time. And that these guys, Nansen and these other guys, wrote their first-person accounts of everything that had happened, and they would go on show tours. And so I think it's not a surprise that his story got eclipsed. But I think the audacity of going this far north and the the way that they just found a way to work together and to try to survive that winter, I still think is like kind of a legendary story. And I wanted to bring it back into more awareness. And your books has such incredible detail. What sort of sources were you drawing on to write it? Well, it was this strange combination because, again, the historical record is blank in places because it's such an old story. There was a journal uh, by Garrett DeVere um, that he was on the second and third voyages with Barents, and he got a recap of the first one. So he wrote that. That's what Shakespeare had probably been made aware of. And there was also in Old Dutch, Uh, from 1600, an account I found at the Library of Congress, which Dutch scholars already knew about, but had never been translated into English. So I had somebody translate that. And he had been on the first two voyages. And there was a ship's replica that was being built as I worked on the book in Harlingen in the Netherlands. And they were kind enough to let me go aboard so I could actually stand in the same kind of space that they had traveled in and see, oh, here's where the cannons would be. And here's, I mean, just to be in that physical space was great. There's a replica of their cabin that's built on Spitsbergen, even though they weren't stranded on Spitsbergen, but they they like their Arctic history there. So they made a replica of the cabin. So I could walk around in that space and sort of pace off, like how many steps would they take? How many, you know, what was that feeling like? And imagining all those men crowded into it. And then, um, I went to museums on uh, in Norway and in the Netherlands and in Russia that had artifacts from the cabin. And the Rijksmuseum people in, in Amsterdam were kind enough to take me to their storage depot where they had stuff not on display. And with gloves and with supervision, I was able to handle the tap from their beer keg and their shoes and their tools and a cane and see the implements of their daily life. And then, of course, going on the three expeditions to the places they'd seen. Uh, On the second one, I learned to haul sails on a tall ship, and I spent as much time as I could up the mast watching the shoreline that they would have seen and recorded. And so it was this experiential thing combined with the physical objects that they lived in and worked in or owned combined with the historical record. And of course, interviewing a, a number of maritime experts from the era and things like that as well to sort of synthesize everything. Sounds so wildly exciting. Um, I love that you went on three expeditions and that mirrors almost the expeditions that Barents went on, three for three. Well, sort of a symmetry, if you will, yes. Yeah, yeah, a symmetry. Um, I suppose as we're near the end of the podcast now, I suppose I'd quite like to know, like, what was the biggest sort of standout moment in your expeditions that you'll remember forever? Well, the Walrus concert was pretty incredible. Um, and and actually, the composer of the waltz that uh, the sailor played, Sasha, the sailor played on the boat, got in touch with me on Twitter. And I love that. And he is like, 
quite old now, and it was a famous Soviet-era waltz, and I love the way all these little things loop into each other. It was sort of wonderful to see history kind of coming together in so many ways. But in terms of the book, one of the other really exciting things that happened, which nobody else was excited about but me, was that as we were leaving Nova Zembla, after we'd been on the, at the ruins of their cabin and come a little way around the coast, our engine died. And so we had to come back using sails only uh, on one of the paths that Barents had sailed. And so, and our boat, which our, we didn't have all the big masts that he did, so ours was a boat and his was a ship, but they were almost exactly the same length, likely within a few inches of each other. And so even though they're shaped differently and the sails were different and all that, just re sort of living that and the wind was against us repeatedly. And so like when you do lose some of those modern things that we've gotten so accustomed to, you realize that the sea really dictates to you what you're going to be doing. And it gave me such a feel for how at the mercy of the elements these guys were and how much more uh, sort of cosseted we are in our modern times. And so that was a really interesting thing for me to sort of have a little unexpected peek into the challenges that they'd faced. That was Andrea Pitzer. Her book, Icebound, Shipwrecked at the Edge of the World, is out now, published by Simon & Schuster. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. <laughs>